WNRI's Upfront. The opinions expressed represent those only of the panel and callers and do not reflect the views of WNRI and its owners. Telephone lines are now open at 7690600. And now, let's join the Upfront panel. It is the Upfront program on this Thursday. Welcome to the double digits of March, March 10th already. Isn't that something, Mr. Boulay? Chris Boulay in studio, as he is each and every Thursday. He does have a guest with him today. We'll allow him to introduce the guest in a moment. But we're on to mind you. There's a few ways you can communicate with the Upfront program. You can place a phone call to 769-0600. That'll put you in the queue. If you're outside the state of Rhode Island, you can use the 800 number, 1-800-949-967. That is 1-800-949-WNRI, but it only works if you're not in Rhode Island. And, of course, the Upfront email is always available, upfront at WNRI.com. Let's say good morning first to Christopher Boulay. Thanks for being with us again, Chris. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, listeners. It's great to be here. And, uh, you know, we're working while Roger's out gallivanting right. around the Atlantic Ocean. Well, I found out it's not exactly a romantic second honeymoon cruise. When he found out that the cargo ship sank that was carrying the luxury cars, he figured if a car's worth 100000 the hubcaps have to be worth something. <laughs> so he is out in the Atlantic Ocean uh, looking for floating hubcaps, from what I understand. From what I understand. <laughs> Yes, um, our guest this morning, and we haven't had a lot of guests because we're, we're we're disliking the politicians where we usually have them. So we only have guests that we that we like. And our guest this morning is Stephen O'Donnell, who wears many hats. He's actually the CEO of the YMCA of Greater Province, where I got to know him, a member of the board. He's also a former superintendent of Island State Police, and also known as Steve Foley, undercover agent, uh, looking at the mafia. So we're going to touch all those things. Welcome. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Good morning, sir. When you and I chatted over the weekend, we were talking about uh, what's going on in Russia, and I thought I knew like all of your background, but I didn't know this, and uh, we're going to talk about um, the protests that are going on in Russia, and you have an inside view of what's going on and how they're thinking, and, and everyone's paying attention to Russia and Ukraine. And again, I, I learned this about you uh, just about a week ago, is that you spent some time in an official law enforcement capacity in Russia and helping them train the Russian police. Can you talk about that and maybe give the listeners some insight about you know, what may be going on there? Sure. In about this time, in 2002, I traveled to Moscow, Russia with a Department of Justice delegation of representatives from federal law enforcement, including the FBI. And at, back then, there was a push to, for Moscow and Russia to adopt some of the way law enforcement operates in our country into their country. So there at the time, very corrupt system, law enforcement, by their own admission, um, very corrupt from the patrol officers straight up through the federal, um, the SSB, which is the Federal Security Bureau, KGB. So we went out. And we're briefed for two or three days at the Department of Justice in Washington for the pitfalls of what could happen to you when you're in Moscow. You have to pay attention to it. Um, you're probably going to be followed. You'll be monitored, even though we're there at their request to assist them. So 
we went out there for several weeks and trained their police during the day. We were escorted by their law enforcement. At night, we were on our own in the sense that we would, you know, go like anywhere else, conferences, you go to restaurants and, you know, tour where you had to tour. But it was clear to us that, you know, we were being monitored and followed. I don't think to hurt us, but to just make sure that they don't trust you. You know, they obviously, for years, there's no love for the Western culture, but they're going to utilize our skill sets. So, we spent some time with their police, and it was unique because when you do a PowerPoint at a presentation, you can speak like I'm speaking now, but you'd speak about a sting operation we did here, and they translate it for you into the police. So one of the things we talked about was how to build task force. Uh, their organization is one police department. In America, you have local police, state police, tribal police, sheriffs. FBI, DEA, all fall under Department of Justice. Local police fall under uh, mayors or town managers. State police fall under a governor. So a little bit different uh, than they how they operate. So that's what we did. We spent three weeks training them, talking about best practices. We made had relationships with uh, mostly with the younger officers out there. They were similar to us. They thought like us. The older ones were just out of a movie. Same thing, you know call them curmudgeony men smoking cigarettes, the cloak and dagger thing that they didn't really want anything to do with us. But I think there was a, a goodwill attempt to try and ingratiate how you know America does law enforcement and kind of clean up their police department. So one of the things that we noticed while we were there for the protest, to your point, is there's a place called the Arbat. It's A-R-B-A-T. It's Arbat Street. It's very similar to Faneuil Hall in Boston, a very big open-air market, mall-type place. And walking through there, we noticed, you know, security, we noticed police, and we noticed different things. And then we noticed a protest or some antisocial behavior, typical things that you see in a mall. But out of nowhere, a group of people dressed in jumpsuits, guns, um, we call them like storm troopers, came and just cleared it out. And um, the words I use is they just pummeled the crowd. Oh, wow. And they picked the leaders, certain people got arrested, and they left and that's the end of it so when we went back to school the next day speaking to our counterparts like what happened and explaining because it was odd it was not something you would typically see in america and they laughed you know kind of cynically that um they find the leaders of those protest groups or those anti-social groups or groups that they feel are not operating the government's interest mm -hmm. whatever that may mean and they laugh, saying, well, the leaders sometimes disappear. And then they make jokes of it. Um, you don't know if it's true, if it's not true. But even if it's not true, it's the chilling effect of the, the leaders, if they get beat or they go to jail or if they disappear uh, or they just don't show up for a long period of time, the rest of that population knows mm -hmm. that could be their faith. So segue that into what's happening in Russia now in the big cities, St. Petersburg, Moscow, which are massive cities. The protests in the thousands of people, they know going into it what could happen to them. And last week, the, their equivalent to our Congress passed legislation that if you talk derogatory about the war, you can get 15 years in jail. That's real. And so that in protesting, it, you, it'll tell you that the Russian people are bucking the system of what's happening in Ukraine. And that's a pretty powerful message to the world, never mind to the Russian government. It's yeah. a very powerful message also to citizens of the United States, uh, as what we've seen over these uh, past few years, such uproar 
over what people feel is government oppression, whether it be mask or vaccine mandate or other items uh, for whatever uh, group was facing them. But hearing this story and hearing what real oppression is and government overreach is, is an amazing perspective that many Americans can't even rationalize because they really truly never experienced that type of oppression. When I was in Florida, I was talking to a former North Korean and I had asked him that, uh, uh, is it what the Western media makes it out to be? Being in North Korea, and he, he reiterated something that I just thought of listening to you. You can't even comprehend what it is because you've never lived with this type of oppression and a stranglehold on the common uh, person. Um, so it's chilling to hear that, yeah, they'll go in, they'll pummel protesters. And uh, I have no reason to believe that the uh, leaders would not disappear from uh, even listening to uh, more of you. Uh, the common, uh, when you were training uh, some of the, uh, maybe, were they new recruits or retraining already existing forces? Existing. They were our counterparts, our peers. Uh, are they all um, on board with the hierarchy? I certainly understand the paramilitary uh, presentation and how chain of command works, but uh, are, are, are they all on board with this type of uh, process or are some reluctantly following uh, orders? No, it's a great question. I think we noticed the younger version, which was me, that type of age group, they were obviously willing. The police departments in Russia do their job. You know, they go after Russian organized crime, they go after mafia, they go after crime. But it's different because they also have to work at the behest of the government to suppress dissent. And so that's something much different than here that, uh, and all they know is what they're fed so to speak. Most of the younger officers were um, intelligent, educated, and so they were much more worldly. The older God, which would be the Putin age group, were much different. And they weren't really, they resisted. It's sort of, I mean, I don't think it's much different in any organization where change is really difficult to take. But to your point, it's active police officers who want to do their job. They want to take the criminals off the street. They do. But there's also a lot more corruption there. You have a Russian mafia. It's called the Vori. It's a little bit different from here, just kind of segueing. What they are is they were developed out of um, the gulags, which they referred to. They were prisoners. And they, they developed these secret groups, and they got so powerful, the government had to play kind of in their sandbox. And so a lot of those things you hear about Russian oligarchs now, those rich men, uh, most of them in, in Moscow, a lot of them made their money through corruption. And then that million turned into a million five and two million, ten millions into billions of dollars based on a very, very corrupt system and a perverse system within the government. And it's enforced by violence. It's forced by murders. While we're there, a good example is the deputy mayor's car got blown up. They attempted to assassinate him. There's a front page of the newspaper, and obviously we can't read it. It's in Russian. And we get the police officer to translate it. And, you know, the deputy mayor in America really, if there is one, is it under, <coughs> excuse me, under God. But when you watch the political elected officials, they're all big, big security details. And sometimes it's hard to distinguish the legitimate political person and a security detail from the security detail from a mafia figure. And, 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 and candidly, the, one of the reasons when we went over in the 90s, Moscow had this influx of 
um, the warriors I referred to, they call it Thief of Thieves, that's the, their version of the mafia. They were infiltrating America. They were going to Brighton Beach, L.A., and there was a huge uptick in Russian crime in this country in the late 90s. And so part of us going over in 2002 was auto theft. Auto theft was a big thing. It's a big market out there. <coughs> Excuse me. And we had done a sting operation here. We presented that there, how we went about doing that, stolen cars, stolen pots. It's a massive business. And believe it or not, it was out of Ukraine and Russia, you know, where the, the crimes were happening. So teaching them how we did it, uh, we're not going to teach them any tricks, but they want to use best practices like anybody else. So to go back to what you asked, the... There's a, they want to do police work, but they also understand they take orders, and if they don't do what they're told, they won't have a job, at the minimum. I'm assuming they are not unionized like here in the States. It, I don't know that factually, but I, I would doubt it very yeah. much. It, uh, it, thank you. It's interesting to take a step back. The relationship we have now with Russia probably couldn't have been worse since the Cold War, and I think back and trying to understand... And I think you've explained it, but I want to make sure I understand in the audience how 20 years ago it was good enough where, you know, you were invited over there to help them out. It's, it's very uh, interesting in a juxtaposition there. It was, a, it was an organized effort by the Department of Justice to, you know, educate countries that were from the communist bloc as the Soviet Union broke up to teach them how democratic principles work and how democratic things um, work in our country. Is, it, is our system perfect? No, but at least uh, we get it right most of the time. And, and there, it's, it's really all the time. Whatever the government mandates, that's what's happening. And not going all the way back to 2002, <coughs> but just going to the 2011, 2012, I understand it was the Russian um, police authorities that warned us about the, uh, the Boston Marathon bombers, that they were bad guys and you, know, you better vet them, and we didn't do that. So I guess at that point, there was some kind of relationship as well. Well, it, it, it's, you know, what I know about it is the ideological differences, if you research Russians' history with the West, and everybody else's history with the West, it's situational loyalty. And so when it's in Russia's interest to collaborate with, the, with America, they're going to collaborate. So when they were collaborating with us on terrorism and those type of things, um, they're involved in sh information sharing, their law enforcement. That's where it's difficult, candidly, for American police, these fusion centers or terrorist um, joint terrorism task forces. Y if you're communicating and cooperating with a country like Russia and you're giving them sensitive information, it might not be handled the same way it would be handled if it came from them to us. But it's a necessary evil in this global world that we live in to take information. And you don't even know if the information you're being given mm. is correct. And you've got to vet it and you've got to analyze it. So that cloak and dagger world is probably at its peak so, right now. So knowing what you know in terms of you know, the rubles down over 30 percent, the, the Russian stock market is down 50 percent, um, where do you think it's going to go? Are they going to be able to quash this dissent? Or you said even with all of this undercurrent, they're still... You know, thousands of people protesting. What's your gut reaction? You know, I don't know. I'm like every other American. I'm, you know, no smarter or more well-read than others. It, I, um, I got to believe there's a point in time <clears throat> where people in any country uh, and see something that's so over-the-top and grotesque that's happening in Ukraine, their own people, but they have to get the proper information. 
and obviously they've shut off the media. And if you, you the media reports, you can go to jail. Some of the media outlets left the country because they don't want to get arrested and charged and incarcerated. So educating their population is going to be difficult. Um, everyone talks about his possible coup. Can you have a coup? And um, that's, per, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin, he's survived. He's probably the most protected person in the world. So who knows? I mean, I don't think anybody has an answer if we did. Yeah. We'd probably be the president of the United States. And talking about Putin and the oligarchs, what they call it, klepto-democracy, klepto-democracy, where you, you kind of alluded to that. Yes, you want to be a, uh, have a police where they're enforcing the laws, but there are certain people who are just off limits. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it's a good point. And when you were there, <coughs> excuse me, you could notice in the hotels, um, you know, when they operate, that they were, I wouldn't say immune, but they're all part of a corrupt system, and the government is part of that. Um, typically in this country, the government is typically not part of um, a corrupt operation. That periodically, you may arrest a corrupt politician, but as a system, their whole system is corrupted, and it's based on uh, the president of your country is worth more than any other person probably in our country, which is ludicrous. Yeah. And how a political elected official takes advantage of their population and becomes that wealthy and it's really allowed to happen it's really not it's not right but that's their system we're going to take a, a commercial break in just a moment. Uh, we invite you to take part in the conversation. If you have a question, uh, we are talking with Stephen O'Donnell. Uh, you can call 769-0600. The upfront email is running. Uh, th there are uh, there are folks uh, that have their um, walls up on our own government here, Stephen. And we did receive an email, and I'm just curious how you would respond to an American citizen uh, that states this. Maybe the Russians and uh, trained the Biden administration on how to deal with the January 6th so-called insurrection. To think the American government does not operate the same way he calls foolish. All governments are handy, heavy-handed when it comes to dealing with so-called rebellions. And um, it's, a, it's something that I've had thrown at me so much here at the radio station since January 6th. And I'm never sure, I mean, how to respond. I don't think there's a magic phrase that I can throw out there and somebody's going to say, Oh, you know what? You're right. But uh, I was wondering how you respond to Americans who feel that way about our own government. I would respond that, um, I'm smiling because you probably see, mm -hmm. that whatever happens skipping... January 6th, because that's something different. But other incidents that happen in this country, as bad as they are, are a minuscule compared to what happens daily in a country like Russia. And it's just part of their culture. We have these one-offs that happen in different times from different protests that turn violent and whatever it may be. Um, so it's hard, I guess the word is assimilate, to assimilate, to understand how that really works in Russia unless you physically live in Russia or you're talking to the people that live in Russia. Um, so our freedoms here, the opportunity to protest is a right that should be allowed forever. Um, the violent piece of it should never be allowed. And then the balance after 9-11, you know, we're... I guess how I could put this in perspective, you have active shooters, you have all these different things with, you have police forces that have to pay attention to it, have to balance um, when it's real, when it's not real. And candidly, if you listen to the president of Russia, he'll talk about the things that happen in this country and he'll publicize that. So January 6th or if it's um, any major event in America, 
he'll publicize that we have similar conflicts. So it doesn't sound like we're as pure as um, we purport ourselves to be. And what I mean by that is we have our own issues in our own country when it comes to this. But he takes advantage of those and he puts it out publicly and there's no second piece. So here in America, at least, you have different voices on different opinions on things. Some people agree with this, some people don't agree with that. You have left, you have right, you had centrist. There's no left, right, there's no centrist. It's all one way. And that's the biggest difference. And when the people do disagree, that is squashed and squashed pretty quickly. Yeah, and us in our own state department makes it tough when they start flying BLM out BLM flags, you know, to bring attention to our, our issues, but that's a that's another story. We're gonna take a quick commercial break. We return, we have one on hold. We'll get to your call in just a moment, but first a message from Savini's. The go-to place for authentic Italian dining is Savini's Pomodoro Italian Kitchen and Bar. Over twenty Italian dishes made to order from our menu or experience our Sicilian style pizza. Build your own while you choose from your veggies, meats and cheeses, and of course our traditional family-style chicken dinner is offered every day. Savini's Pomodoro on Rathbun Street with affordable accommodations for weddings, birthdays, anniversaries, and business meetings. Close Mondays open Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday at 4, Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays at noon. For reservations, call 762-5114. That's 762-5114. Savini's Pomodoro Italian Kitchen and Bar, 476 Rathbun Street, Woonsocket. Inviting you to join us at our family-owned businesses, Savini's or Ciro's. Perfect for any event. Soup and salad bar now available. And Papa Savini's famous roasted chicken and noodle soup also available by the 32-ounce jar to take home at Savini's Pomodoro. Champs Liquors for Keyway, 481 Clinton Street, Woonsocket, still featuring flip-flop wines. A California winery that has crafted a variety of wines that are fun, fruit-flavored, with amazing taste. Listen to what we have. Two bottles of flip-flop wine for $10, including Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Pink Moscato, regular Moscato, Chardonnay, and Pinot Grigio. Again, two bottles for $10, mix and match. And our newest wine edition comes from Italy. Check out the Stella Rosa collection. It's a semi-sweet wine offered in a variety of tastes including peach, blackberry, blueberry watermelon, and green apple to mention a few, and affordably priced at $11.99 or $12.99. Goes well with a wide range of appetizers, entrees, and desserts. And yes, we continue the best price in town on Bud or Bud Light, 30-pack, $26.47 plus tax. We're open daily, 8 a.m. to 9 p.m. For a great selection of beer and wine and spirits. You can count on Champs Liquors, 481 Clinton Street. The Honey Shop is fast becoming a household name. A food manufacturer, they make natural health products, honey products, and gourmet foods, such as infused olive oils, balsamic salsas, hot sauces, gluten-free soups, jams, apple cider vinegar products, pasta sauces, teas, sugar, barbecue sauces, natural nut and seed butters, and yes, more. If you love food, you're going to love the Honey Shop. Many of their products are available in shop for sampling. Their signature products Product, of course, Breathe. It's an all-natural cold and allergy remedy. Made, of course, with honey. It was invented in 2013. In addition to the food and health products, they also host workshops, classes, events, and educational hikes. So if you're looking for a true shopping experience or are looking to add a little spice to your life, 
stop by for a bite. The Honey Shop at 1300 Park Avenue in Woonsocket, the same building that houses CALM Picture Framing Gallery. You'll find The Honey Shop right here in the city of Woonsocket. You're listening to WNRI's Upfront, a radio internet talk show. Now, let's get back to the panel. Chris Boulay in studio. Your calls in conversation in a moment, and the Upfront email is running. Yes, if you're just tuning in, I'm speaking to Colonel Stephen O'Donnell, who's the current CEO of the Greater uh, YMCA of uh, Greater Providence, and he's also former superintendent of Rhode Island State Police, and we're going to have two vectors going on here, but I know we've got a couple of people waiting. We do have a couple of calls. A quick question for Steve. We have a host that's in Poland right now at the Ukrainian border, John DiPietro, and although he's reporting on heavy topics, it's human interest as well here as we try to associate what it's like over there. Uh, So I asked him the question I'd like to ask you. How's the food uh, in Russia while you were there? Did you find it uh, palatable and uh, the cost of living was it high no it was actually um not that expensive and you can't read a menu and you don't have someone with you during the day you're provided food but at night you can't read a menu so you're looking at people's dishes and what is that you don't know if it's fish duck so um you're very cautious what you eat because you don't understand it but uh, most of the restaurants could understand what you're asking for as i told you before there's a place called the abat and it's you can see food so uh, they have street vendors so fruits fruit you know, you can see what a pineapple looks like. So you ate, I probably ate a better diet there. And if all the things go worse, they have McDonald's. There you go. <laughs> uh, Chris, we'll get to the phone lines. And uh, you're on the air on the Upfront program with today's panel. What's on your mind? Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I have a question for the colonel. Uh, how long ago did you go to uh, uh, Russia, uh, Colonel? May of 2002. No, that's quite a ways back. Because I was going to say, uh, I went. They're so strict over there on street protests, and we seem kind of uh, laid back. Uh, did that ever come up? There, or were you asked uh, why you were not as strict uh, on protesters as they are? No, but in conversation with them, they just felt that our way of doing business was certainly much more. Um, tacit than theirs, very passive from their perspective, because um, it's a different, you know, they're given different orders, they're just given different, um, it's a different system, so um, I, when we asked them about the protest or the antisocial behavior we witnessed and then their response, that's where they said, you know, it's no, they take zero, you know, zero tolerance, and then it's not even the response to arrest of a minor arrest, it's the punishment. The punishment that they give you, which could be very physical, violent, um, to, you know, locking you up without due process, and then, you you know, kind of a kangaroo court where you go to jail, and they find the leaders of those groups, and if you're the leader, you, you um, they find a place for you, and then everybody else sees that you're missing, and it's just a chilling effect on the rest, which makes them not want to follow the same behavior. Uh, you know, I wonder these days uh, how uh, old school cops, I'm thinking back to Colonel Stone, and maybe even yourself, uh, feel about uh, standing down when crimes are being committed right un- under their, their noses, such as uh, a loot, a looting and uh, arson, and arson and burning. No, I understand your question. Um, I am certainly um, 
I would be old by age, but not old school cop. I think I have old school and new school ideologies, and I totally agree that this uh, in this country we should not be talking defunding police. We should. That's ridiculous. Um, and the people that are affected mostly by that, sir, are the people in the urban core. And I'll tell you that because I grew up in the urban core. I work in the urban core, and they're the ones that they're asking for the police. They're just asking police to do it right. And police don't always get it right. Sometimes they make mistakes. They're human beings. But, you know, the whole thought of a defunding the police and not supporting them, that's why the crime rate is where it is in all the cities. That's why New York City, that's why Providence, why every major urban center in this country has had a major, not a minor, major uptick in crime and violent crime. Why? Because the police will do their job, but the work I did when I was a younger officer was in these upfront units where we target career criminals. If you're going to carry a gun and it's not legal, you know, you're a career criminal, we're going to find you. And if you're an organized criminal, we're going to find you, we're going to target you. And if you're doing it wrong, we're going to put you in jail. That's, uh, candidly, those police units have been disbanded either through a political structure um, and, you know, the fear of uh, policemen losing their job. Try and be a modern-day police officer where I think the public should really know that when you approach a criminal, it's not like... They're going to say, okay, how you doing? They're going to fight, and they're going to run. And when they run, you have to use force. And when you use force, it looks ugly sometimes. But the point of force is you have to win. It doesn't mean you have to be brutal. Um, put that person in handcuffs, then it's over. But policemen know if they stop a car and then that the suspect takes off, their policies say you can't chase. So it's a balance, and people know that. The people on the street know if they take off the police that the police won't chase them, and they're carrying a gun. So it just creates it. And, and the last thing I'll tell you that is 99% of the crimes of murder that happen in this country, there's a nexus to a vehicle, motor vehicle. So if the police aren't stopping those vehicles and, you know, using probable cause, the tools that they were taught to search vehicles when it's legally permissible, then there's, there's no fear of getting stopped in a, in a car. And if you do get stopped, you take off. So before... You know, years ago when those upfront units were really working hard to get those guns off the street, the murder rate and the violent rate was much lower. Thank you for your oh, oh. great answer, Colonel. Uh, did you uh, start out as a uh, state trooper or did you uh, work for a city, city department? Caller, we're going to let you uh, go so we can get to the other line. We'll let the uh, colonel answer, but we have some uh, calls coming in. We want to make sure we move on. Thank you very much. Uh, could, you could answer the question. Sure. Here. I started in corrections. I was a correctional officer um, in, in, the, in the ACI Maximum Security. Then I was a local police officer for North Kingstown Police. And then I was um, then I got on the state police in 1987. I'm sorry, 1980, yeah, 1987. All right. Thanks for your call. We're going to move to our next line. You are on the air with the Upfront panel. Thanks for your time this morning. What's on your mind? Good morning. Good morning. Um, as I listen to your guest, I appreciate the knowledge that he brought forth in his former positions. And I always felt safe and things were being done when he had he was the head of the state police. Um, as I listened to many cities and towns and even um, going over our vice president today, it seems sad that people are put into high positions, whether it be president, vice president, not for what they know, but for who they know. And that's why I truly think that our weaknesses are existing because of this philosophy. 
And people today should maybe listen to the news, um, get their children. I, I taught for many years, and, and I always believed in uh, programs. And, and this is an elementary that you listen to the news, uh, that you educate yourself about the history of an area as far as uh, of people, um, immigrants coming in. And I, I'm first generation. Uh, but I, I can remember... Do you, do you have a question for the Colonel? Yeah. Yes. Um, I feel that we have to up things right now as far as, as police, etc. I had doctors in Providence But what's your question now. for the Colonel? We, 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 I don't feel safe in Providence. What do you think about Providence she, right okay. Do you feel safe in Providence is the question from that caller after all, then. Huh? Well, I work in Providence, so I work on Broad Street every day. So do I feel safe? Yes. That's me personally um, because I'm, I'm used to an, um, the, an urban culture, but... I think, in theory, um, no. There's a lot of things happening in that city. I see it where I work every day um, in parking lots. And a lot of it's quality of life things that turn into major issues. It might be prostitution, where people call it victimless crime. Well, do you want to walk out of work and see two people engaging in a car? Um, that happens all the time. Open-air drug dealing. Um, that happens. And when you do that, you're inviting um, other issues into that neighborhood. It's called the broken, broken windows theory that goes back to the 80s with uh, Rudolph Giuliani in New York City. So some of those things, I think, should come back because the vagrancy issues, every corner I go on, bar none, I come in from the backside of Broad Street when I go to Crossroads. There's five people asking me for money. I hit Elmwood Avenue Broad. There's more people asking for money. And to me, I'm not intimidated by that because I can read them. But if you're not from that area, you're not coming into that area. You don't need to be accosted by people on a daily basis. So those quality of life issues matter anywhere, especially in an urban setting. If, if I may, um, we can all agree that maybe you know it's lousy now from like four or five years ago. We, we've definitely going into the direction and I guess the question when we have law enforcement people here we had Peter Derona here a couple weeks ago is it worse now than it was say in the 90s at the height of the crime you know early 90s so you've been at this for a long time so yes we've seen degradation last three or four years for sure but if we go back to there is it worse or the same yeah I'm not sure that's um, honestly a viable answer to compare the two worse um, well, the, the crime the crime rates in terms of the quality of life. Yeah, because obviously we've gone, as you know, the FBI stats say crime's going down, 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 down. Last couple of years, it's got it's going back ahead. up. So, what are you, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's probably similar to what it was, and I think that's what different pundits and elected officials say. Well, it went down for years; it's just natural up uptick. I think the idea of crime is you always want it to go down and, and never come back up. Yeah. That's what you want to be striving for. Sometimes we blame it on COVID. We blame it. The bottom line is 28 people died last year, got murdered. And that's big. And that's and how many other people got shot. So what I think is happening is the violence has gone up. A lot of it has to do with this the anti-police sentiment. Where And look, police are human. So if you're going to knock them every day, they're going to do their job, but that's all they're going to do. Maybe a sense of emboldening the criminal yes. with their power against law enforcement. Yeah. Perfect storm that. Sorry. Bail reform, um, you know, less incarcerations. And I'm not saying put everybody in jail, but you got to pick and choose. There's some bad people on the street, and those people have to be removed from society to make a message. If they're not, and they're not done instantly, 
then it makes a mockery of the, of the justices. You mentioned quality of life. Uh, we're talking with Stephen O'Donnell, former, um, uh, you know the name from our state police, but he's, we've talked about Russia and his many hats that he wears, as Chris put it at the top. Um, but we approach quality of life. I got to get on my soapbox for a minute. I got to ask you, uh, the movement of decriminalizing narcotics. We've decriminalized marijuana in Rhode Island, although you, you, you still can get some, um, some interaction with law enforcement. There's a proposal to legislators to decriminalize magic mushrooms now in Rhode Island. Oregon's decriminalized all narcotics. Uh, Where do you stand on decriminalizing narcotics in this country and the state of Rhode Island and the impact it has on crime rate? Well, it is crazy. So when I was a superintendent, I was pretty adamant and I testified against legalizing marijuana. Why? Um, Not the reason it's out there and government officials are supporting it is the incarceration piece that if you the theory would if you get caught with a small bag you're not not going to go to prison but if you get caught with marijuana and you plead guilty or you're convicted typically it's a plea and you get caught again you become a violator and should someone go to jail for a marijuana offense i don't really think they should if you're selling at the high level yes but the the piece that i think is missed in this whole dialogue and i don't have a say in it anymore is this opioid mess if you talk to anybody that knows what they're talking about when it comes to the opioid problem we have, and it's not even a problem, it's an epidemic. Think about this. I said yes, uh, shortly, short time ago, 28 people were murdered in, in Rhode Island last year. 435 people died of some type of overdose. Opioid. That we can t- um, classify, even though there's probably more. Think about that. It's 10 to 15 times higher. And... Sometimes, and, and we're still the one to declassify this drug, declassify that drug. So there was a, um, I had heard a few weeks ago that um, somebody had mentioned in a national conversation about fentanyl, making fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction um, because it has no other purpose except to destroy a person and destroy kind of a country. Um, I don't know if that happened, but to go back to these gateway drugs, talk to anybody in the opioid business, marijuana. One in five people have addictive personalities. So if t- five of us smoke pot, one of us probably will get hooked on it, and that will lead us to the next drug, the stepping stone drugs. Those are facts. That's not my opinion. So if it's alcohol or if it's caffeine, if it's something you have addictive personality and marijuana becomes mainstream, and then you go into the next one, that's just one example that I think it's flawed logic. I think the logic is uh, everybody does it. Let's just make it legal. But what do you do with the impaired driving piece? Our death's going to go up from drunk drug drug driving. You've heard some horrific stories in the last couple of months about drug driving, drunk driving. Um, so I wouldn't say I have a, a, a great stance on it because I'm not in. I have no say in it. I have no bully pulpit. But I'm not a big proponent of any drug. I don't. I also drug use and decriminalize it because you're just saying it's okay. Everywhere you go, I went to the car wash the other day. As best example, everybody smokes pot. I did a toy drive with kids at the Greater Province YMCA, and when I was done, we probably had hundreds of cars coming through for toys, and we had state police there, and we had province police there, and I kidded with them after. I said, did, how, how'd you like all that perfume in those cars? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and so it's systemic. So, yeah. every, so how do you know who's high, how high are they? And when they drive into your son, your daughter, or your wife, it changes things. So there's got to be a better way of managing, you know, legality and responsibility. 
The uh, next step is Rhode Island, and there's an article in today's call, safe houses where people can actually go, hand their drugs over, have them inspected, hand drugs back, legally use them in front of people to make sure that they're not overdosing. If you just had a final thought on that before we take our next break. Well, I do. So you've talked about the legalization of marijuana. So some of it that I would agree with, if you legalize it, then it's being sold, it's being tested, and you know what that person's getting. Um, it's like, an order, no, like every other drug. If you buy it on the street, you have no idea what you're getting. If you buy in heroin, heroin, and then you get fentanyl, and then you die from it. So I think that's the people, or the, the group of people that want to legalize it because they want to make sure that they're getting the right stuff. Um, I'm not really sure I'm good with that, that stuff, but again, it doesn't nope. matter. I'm not in that business. I agree, uh, Stephen, and in my opinion, I wish they were as concerned with detox facilities as they are about safe house facilities. Then we'd be getting somewhere and saving a life. Thank you for that comment. Chris, thanks you for that time as well. We have more on the Upfront program. Here's Grumpy's Restaurant. Enjoyable dining or your favorite pickup order to go from Grumpy's Restaurant in Bellingham. Open seven days a week with a great luncheon menu starting at just $5.99. And a little full menu from burgers to steaks to seafood and great Italian dishes including tasty pizzas. One of the best menus in the area. Hungry today or tonight? Well, come on in and enjoy friendly service, reasonable prices, and great food at Grumpy's. Call ahead for a pickup order or place a reservation to dine in at 508-883-0101. Grumpy's, 190 Pulaski Boulevard in Bellingham. Grubhub delivery available. Matthew and Nelv invite you to drop off your laundry at M&N Laundromat. We wash, dry, fold when you drop off for only a dollar a pound. Includes detergent, bleach softener, dryer sheets with clear plastic bags. Pickup and delivery is available too. We have all commercial front load machines, 20 pounds, 30, 40, 60 pounds, and 80 pound washers. And enjoy our 65 inch flat screen TV and free Wi-Fi while you're here. Commercial accounts are also welcomed, including nursing homes and restaurants. We have the equipment to do the big jobs with washes up to 100 pounds and dryers up to 45 pounds. Have a question? Call us at 769-9661. The husband and wife team, Matthew and Nell, invite you to stop by our 389 Willow Street location. Matt is a Woonsocket native and proud to say M&N Laundromat is locally owned and operated. All right, we are here on the Upfront program. Chris Boulay, thank you for bringing in a spectacular guest. We have Stephen O'Donnell here. Uh, we have two on the line. Yeah, they've, are, been, they've been patient. What I'm going to ask you to do, though, uh, is there's so much to talk about with Stephen O'Donnell. If you could be uh, direct as possible with your questions, and uh, and then we'll uh, give Stephen more time to answer. But we're going to go uh, to the phone lines. Thank you for your patience. We appreciate your time on your busy morning. You're on the air with the Upfront panel. Hello? Hello? Yes. Okay. Um, are we on the air? I can't hear you. You're on the air. Please, what is your question for Stephen O'Donnell? Okay. Here's um, what my statement's going to be. A brief statement at that and a question for Stephen O'Donnell. You're putting on your mascara and you're worried about crime and you're worried about going to work and being mugged on the way. You have to look in that mirror and you have to say, who's to blame? Who's to fault? And you have to ask yourself, did you vote for a liberal DA? Did you vote for someone who wants to defund the police? And when you say yes, you have to look at the mirror and you have to realize you're the problem. It's the common citizen who's voting in all these liberals who are soft on crime. That's why we have a crime problem. It's you. 
but the citizenry has to wake up. And we have to vote for people who are going to be tough on crime. Until that happens, we're not going to fix it. Well, let's, let's, let's rephrase that. Are you concerned about George Soros prosecutors or, um, who, who maybe who are taking the country in a different direction in terms of uh, crime under $1,000 for shoplifting is not prosecutable? Your thoughts? Yeah, look what just happened when you just watched it on television where it's not a crime or it's not being paid attention. They walk into these stores and they just run out the store. It's some um, pandemonium. So to me, um, I, uh, the call, I forget your first name, but I totally agree. If uh, As citizens, it's our responsibility to vote for who we think will represent our views best. And if your views are that a law and order within you know reasonable parameters, then that's what we should be doing. And so that's the system we have. So um, I, I agree with you. It's our, it's, I wouldn't say it's our own fault, but we elect people and we should elect those people and ask them to do what you've elected them to do. And, of course, the ultimate protest in America is the next election cycle. Uh, we're going to get to line one. Caller, you are on the air at the Upfront panel. Good morning. Good, mo- good morning, fellas. Uh, Jeff, great work today. Colonel, thanks for your service. I'm going to oversimplify the question a little bit, but I'd like to know, you've seen how Russia operates. You see how America operates. What society do you think can uh, go into the future? Uh, I guess I'm trying to Which one is the most sustainable? I caught the Russia. What was your comparison? Um, With all of the basic, I think that none of the question is with all of the types of governments and process that you've witnessed, who, which is the most sustainable for the future, I believe, is the crux of the question. Thank you, Tim. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Thanks for the call. Yeah, I think without a doubt, you know, I'm an American and, uh, you know, democratic system is the way it should be. You have a voice. Um, Sometimes your voice gets... um, outvoted by the next voice and then i think you just mentioned the next election um you correct those things so um without question i would never want to live in a place like russia i think um you couldn't do what we're doing right now if you were in russia we couldn't have that clear conversation so um again we're not perfect in a democratic society but it's the it's the best system communism socialism democracy democracy is the way to go absolutely thank you uh sir uh chris did you uh want to uh bring up another question we do have another caller well they just got online we'll give them a a couple minutes there certainly we want to make time um obviously law enforcement uh is part of your past and of your present is the CEO of the Greater Province YMCA. I've had a first-hand view of what a great job you've done turning that organization around. But you've got some things going on. So at a couple of minutes here, I want to make sure we touch upon that. You've got a great event. You've made connections with some very important people in Rhode Island who, who support the Y mission. We do. So it's, um, everyone says it, it's such a different job. It, it's they're similar. And in leader, leadership positions, it's transferable skills. Wherever you end up doing, um, I went to the YMCA because I felt so committed to the community piece of law enforcement that um, we. I spent some time with my staff, staff before me, learning and ed- getting educated, spending time in the community. Again, it's assimilating to that community so you can understand it. And they can understand you. So when I went to the Y, that was the goal is to stay involved in the community. I grew up in Providence. I have a connection to the city. I believe in the urban setting, and I believe in um, how men and women can make a difference in people's lives. I'm a perfect example. I had a mother and father. It's not always the case in an urban setting. So we're trying to fill that gap in the Greater Providence YMCA. So as Chris alluded to, 
May 10th, we have a, a function we call the Why Heroes. Every year we recognize um, anywhere from three to six people or organizations that have helped the Why generically over um, decades or within the last several years. So this year's pool of talent is pretty impressive. Coach Ed Cooley, who's also a board member that was on the board with Chris, um, and we had... You know, we aspired Ed Cooley well before this, this past year. So we love Ed Cooley. Um, so come out and join us. We're on the convention center. You can go on the Greater Providence YMCA website. Congressman Jim Langevin, it's his last year. Obviously, he, and we're going to honor his service. Malcolm Chase, the service that he's provided for the YMCA. We're also going to honor our staff. So with COVID, we felt as a group and our board of directors that our staff was phenomenal, that the people who stayed, uh, we had major layoffs when COVID happened, and the people that stayed and that came back, uh, we believe that we should be recognized them as one of our. And the last but not least is Barbara Pepito from the Pepito Opportunity Connection, who is a major instrumental in helping us getting like swim programs for kids, kids that can't afford it, especially Rhode Island with the Ocean State. So um, we have a lot going on at the Y. We have the, the biggest child care provider in the state, all the Ys in Rhode Island. There's a lot that we do. We have camps coming up. Our camps are wide open this summer. Um, there's four different locations. We have an overnight camp at Camp Fuller. That's for a residential camp, one-week camp, two-week camps on Salt Pond. So kids learn how to fish. They learn how to um, and say snowboard, but they know how to water ski. Um, they do environmental things where they can go oystering and they can learn about environmental science. And then we have 115 acres at Kent County where it's the woods, so we can take kids out to the woods. And believe it or not, there's kids from the urban core that we take to the woods, and there's a little water park. They think they're at Six Flags. And I mean that, you know, jokingly, but they said... It's all uh, relative. Yeah, so it's giving different experiences, and I'm a firm believer in opportunity, you know, Hand ups, not handouts. And that's all the people that I surround myself and they surround with me. It's opportunity, not get anything for free. Have an opportunity, you step in that door and then take advantage of what is given to you and then bring it back to the community. Roger would be upset with, with uh, Jeff and I if uh, we didn't ask you uh, uh, for a scoop. Um, you still stay in touch with the state police. Is, is there going to be a change of leadership uh, soon? Yeah, that's out there pretty publicly. They've, uh, um, I think the governor commented on Monday that he'd have a comment coming up soon. So I'll leave that up to the governor to make his announcement probably fairly shortly. Well, you can uh, squeeze in the caller. We appreciate your patience this morning, caller, on your busy morning. You are on the upfront panel, and you got about two minutes if you have a question for Stephen O'Donnell. Hello. State and local governments do to help protect our policemen's lives. I listen for your answer. What can uh, communities do, I think, at large, uh, whether it be municipal, state, or federal, to support uh, law enforcement officers? Of course, there's government, but then there's the common citizen. So what can a common citizen do that wants to support the men and women in blue? There's a lot you can do in your cities and towns. You can lobby the representatives, the town councils, about how they're compensated, they're security packages, so to speak, the benefit packages, you can make that known that you support the police. Send letters to the police. You'd be surprised it doesn't really happen when you see a letter from a really satisfied citizen because typically police only hear when it's bad. Um, if there's an incident, see something, say something. Pick up the phone. Citizens are the most powerful weapon that the police have in their arsenal to tell them what's happening. And police rather be proactive than reactive. There's something they can quell prior to it. It's nothing wrong with you calling up the police and saying, I'm seeing something, um, something's kind of odd, or behavior. 
Um, especially when it comes to the world we live in, things just happen. Um, active shooters, when you hear about younger people, it's mostly men that have acted out. There's always somebody knew something before. So see something, say something, really. Um, and then if there's a, a function that the police are doing, we talked about um, Cops Walk and things like that, support those events because they're for the law enforcement that have lost their lives. Those families you know, are devastated for the rest of their lives, so you can help them economically with helping with fundraising. And to uh, rephrase something uh, you spoke about a few minutes ago, Steve, and I think the biggest thing you can do to probably help law enforcement, off of your words, sir, uh, is to mentor somebody who needs mentorship to make sure they have an opportunity for the path of righteousness versus a uh, life of crime. Yeah, absolutely, because every child that's born comes out good. So somewhere they hit some place in society that takes them to a different direction. So there's always going to be a handful that you just, they're, they're incorrigible, they have to be incarcerated, um, protect the society. But most of them are redeemable. you got to get them when they're young. So they're, that's a great point. Uh, the police are only as good as their the next day if you can get to these young kids get involved in programs find programs that are helping kids and support them that means maybe financially too uh, why is one of those good examples we mentor children we're a nonprofit, so we operate on membership but we operate on donations too those donations go directly back to helping maybe a kid go to camp say camp costs 300 bucks 300 dollars is 299 dollars too expensive for a lot of people believe it or not so you give a thousand dollars to a Y, three kids are going to camp so keep those things in mind that's another way of helping the police because you're getting kids on the right track and that's what, what you really want thank you so much for your time chris uh, i'll give you a moment to wrap it up um just very quickly we never got to steve foley you were an undercover agent for years and years um uh, uh, investigating the mafia is it, is it worse now or better or the same uh when you were uh breaking them down there well, better or worse wouldn't make it to describe it, but the organized crime in America, New England specifically, is certainly not um, going away, but it's a shell of what it was. Um, most of that is because of really diligent work by state and local police, federal police, which is the FBI, because they're the investigative arm of the feds, and the prosecutors who do an unbelievable job prosecuting them. And truth and sense in it. When these wise guys, so to speak, go to jail and they're going to get life in prison, it's, they, they roll over. At the highest levels, Sam Gravano, the number two guy in the Gambino family, rolled over. What I don't agree with is guys like him get out of jail and then they profit. You know, they write books. and some That's the, happening a lot right now. Yeah, Sam Gravano had to give some of the money from the, his book called Underboss to victims, but then he's doing podcasts now. And that's a guy that killed 19 people for sure. Um, admitted to it and then got rearrested when in the witness protection program selling ecstasy. So in Rhode Island, you had Frank Salemi, who was the boss, who cooperated. And these are all nothing I would tell you that's not out of school. It's all in court documents. Frank Salemi cooperated. Bobby DeLuca, uh, Bobby DeLuca was a capo who flipped in 2006 and set that whole group of um, Louis Menacchio, they all went to jail because of, uh, mostly because Bobby Lucas' cooperation. So nobody wants to go to jail anymore. So to aspire to those leadership positions, it's very odd. And in closing, it used to be Boston, Providence, boss, underboss, or Providence, Boston. So a balance of power. So if the boss came out of Providence, the underboss was Boston or vice versa. Now it's Boston, Boston. And that's based on you know, a high-ranking guy like Bobby DeLuca flipping. So, and um, there's a conduit from Rhode Island that, you know, is the conduit that handles it, but they're not 
anywhere the way they were before. And remembering all those wise guys that committed crimes, there's no statute of limitation on murder. <laughs> so if they haven't been charged, you know, they might be 70 years old when they finally get caught for murder 25 years ago. And if they're, you know, if they're held accountable, then so be it. So the Conomatic is closed. Conomatic's been closed for a while. All right. Thank you very much, Chris Boulay. My pleasure. I uh, appreciate you being here, sir. I uh, appreciate your time. Don't be a stranger to the Upfront program. We thank look you. forward to uh, having you return at some point. And thank you for listening to the Upfront program. This has been WNRI's Upfront, presented weekday mornings at 8 a.m.